Amen. Thank you, Scotty. A couple of um, months ago, I gave a message in which I was challenging people that if you saw kids in your neighborhood, uh, some of you might remember this, and you knew they didn't connect at a church, that you would stop and see if you could take those kids to church. Well, I want you to know I just don't say those things. I actually try to live that out. took me a couple of months. But uh, our neighbor, uh, Kylie, who's in the fifth grade, will be coming to kids camp uh, this week, and we're going to pick her up and take her back. And uh, I would encourage you that uh, if you have neighborhood kids, that you would stop and pick them up and uh, bring them to our kids camp uh, this week because it's going to be a great, uh, great time. Well, we're in the middle of a series called Fuel in which we are uh, looking at a particular book of the Bible called James, which is in the second half of the Bible, uh, which is the New Testament. And we've been encouraging people to uh, bring their Bible uh, each uh, Sunday. And uh, did, did anyone bring their Bible today? Look at that. Okay. There's a few. Good. Very good. The first group... None of them did, so we kicked them out, and it was an easy morning. No, just joking. But uh, we love uh, people to be engaged in the Bible, and the reason is, is because if there was only one thing that I could recommend you to grow your life spiritually, it would be to engage in this book daily. The one way that God always speaks is through His Word. And I think the more that we engage in that, the more we look like him, the more we grow to be like him. And so we want to encourage you to engage in this. And the reason is, is because although, uh, you know, Chuck and I try to inspire you and challenge you and encourage you on our teachings on Sunday, where the game really comes to play is between the Sundays, where you grow the most is when you engage uh, with this uh, on a daily basis. Now, I realize that some of you um, no longer have any books in your life. Everything that you have fits on your phone. So you read on your phone, you text on your phone, you Facebook, you Twitter, you whatever. Now, I told Mikey, I said, I realize this, so we wanted to create... Uh, an app uh, to do that. And he's there's like, no way we can do that, Chris. That takes a lot of work. But I said, well, can we find one? He said, yeah. And so he found an app that you can put on your phone called the version. Now, you can go ahead and check this out either on your app, Apple App Store, or you can... Do it by going to your Google Play Store. He had to write all this stuff down because I have no clue. Um, And it should be the first thing that comes up. We even have a QR code. Do you know what that means? I don't either. But if you have it on your phone, you already know. And you can, like, aim it at that, and it will download the Bible, I think, or something similar to that. All of those that have phones like that, I don't. So um, that's it. Now, again, this is something that is free. It's not going to cost you anything. So 
You know, you're like, yeah, I bet it's free. No, it's really free. So you can go ahead and you can get that today. So regardless of whether you want your Bible on your phone or you want to uh, be able to just have your Bible, engage in it weekly. And we have the fuel uh, kind of pamphlet that we've been given to you weekly um, so that you would engage. Just five minutes uh, when you walked in today, you should have received uh, that pamphlet as well. Because the single most productive thing you can do is engage with the Bible, whether it's on a hard page or on your phone. When you read it, you ponder it, you think about it, all of a sudden you apply it to your life and it changes things because it's the primary way that God speaks to us. Sometimes he does whisper to us, but sometimes I'm not very receptive to his whisper. Maybe you're not either. Sometimes I hear it, but I don't do anything about it. But God's word is something that is always living and breathing. I heard a pastor one time say that the Bible is pregnant. (laughs) That the Bible's pregnant. It's constantly giving new life uh, to us. Now, another very important book to my life is uh, this book. Uh, This is a blast from a past. This is my sophomore year high school yearbook. Okay? It doesn't wait to the Bible. I'm not trying to make them you know, the same, but it's important. Now, I went to Anderson, Madison Heights, uh, the home of the mighty pirates. And uh, our yearbook was called Treasure Chest. And this is from my sophomore year. And I was looking through it, and I started to notice, as I looked through it, that there were different classes in here. There's the freshman class and the sophomore class and the junior class, and the senior class. Now, this is from my sophomore year, and, you know, I was an underclassman. In other words, I wasn't very high on the totem pole. I was just a lowly sophomore. But uh, I just want you to see a picture of me that I really haven't changed, you know? I mean, that's, that's pretty much me there. Pretty cool, isn't it? You'd think that guy could smile. You know, this was right before the unibrow hit me. And it just, it was like just one, one thing. Um, But when I was looking through my yearbook, I started noticing these different classes. You can take that off at any time. Uh, (laughs) We have children in here, you know, we don't want to scare them. Um, But beyond, you know, just freshman class, sophomore class, Uh, junior class, senior class, there's subgroups too. And at Anderson Madison Heights, it was the athletes or the jocks that were kind of the top of, you know, the the school. Now, it's different in other high schools. I realize sometimes it's the band or maybe it's the smartest kids or, you know, maybe it's a gang uh, kind of uh, mentality. But in my school, uh, it was the athletes or the jocks. Now, I was an athlete, but uh, I just sat the bench uh, for the basketball team, and I ran cross-country and track, but I wasn't, you know, the best. And there was kind of, uh, there was like an athlete, but then there was the athlete who grew up in Anderson their whole life. And what really made you the top is if you were... Enrique Suave with the ladies. So 
I was O for two. I, I grew up in Marion my whole life and just moved to Anderson my freshman year. And I did not become Slim Shady, Barry White, love you, baby, until I met my wife. And then, I mean, I don't know what came over me, but it was like putty in my hands, you know. Let's all embarrass my wife on July 4th. Just look back there. There she is, the beautiful Jennifer. There she is. I will get in trouble for that one later on. But she is beautiful. But, but that's what the class was. And I was not in that class. I was like on the B team. You know, you were an athlete, but you weren't like in with all the kids. So I was just an athlete. Now, there are other kinds of defined subclasses. There are the athletes, the drama club, the band, uh, the choir people. There were the loners. There were the stoners. You know, there were the geeks. Uh, there was the in crowd. There was the out crowd. And all of these years later, when I was looking through that yearbook, I realized that we continue to designate people in different classes. Folks, regardless of who you are or how holy you think you are, we all have a dirty little secret. And the secret is that we put people in different classes. In between our minds, we don't let it out, but in our minds, we classify people, whether they're acceptable or whether they're unacceptable. And James begins chapter 2 by talking about this reality. He begins by saying this. It'll come up on the side screens. My brothers and sisters. And you know, most of the time in the Bible, when it says my brothers and sisters, it's kind of a warm feeling. Like this guy's inviting me to be a brother, to be a sister. Not with James. Every time that James uses this phrase, my brothers and sisters, in his book, it is time for you to brace yourself because he is going to nail you with something in your life. And so he says this, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show what? Favoritism. He says, don't do it. Now remember, Jesus was the half-brother of this guy named James that we've been studying this entire summer. And he's addressing his brothers and he's reminding them, hey, the guy that you're following was not at the top of the totem pole when he came to planet Earth. He was on the wrong side. He was excluded, rejected, ignored. He was born a Jew... And being born a Jew at this time was not like a big high thing. It was, you were the most persecuted race out of all of them. People would call him Jew boy and things that were even worse. And it's no accident that even though the Son of God came down to earth, he wasn't born to a royal family. He wasn't born to a wealthy family. He wasn't born to a powerful family. He was born to a family that was just a little bit more than the peasants, a carpenter's family. I mean, for part of Jesus' life, did you know this? Part of Jesus' life, he even lived as a homeless person. 
Scripture says this. Jesus said this. One day he was speaking. He said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Folks, even though he was the Son of God, he left heaven where he was at a magnificent high place. He was top dog, and he came down to earth, and he humbled himself And why did he do this? Because he wanted to extend a revolutionary kind of love, not just to the rich, not just to the wealthy, not just to the poor. He wanted to do it to all people. Regardless of who you are, his revolutionary love extends to all the people. Well, James says, those of you that follow Jesus, some of you are following this person who emptied himself, and if you follow him, you must not show what? Favoritism. Now, the word favoritism comes from a Greek word that basically means receiving the face. It's receiving somebody at face value. This is your first fill-in in your outline if you want. But favoritism is accepting somebody based on how they look or how they appear rather than to look beneath at the heart. It's based on how they look, how they appear. The Bible says that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And favoritism is what leads us to keep those secret, unpublished lists in our minds that puts people into classes, and we define them on whether or not we'll accept them or we won't, and those who will help us get what we want, and those who will simply drag us down. You know those needy people, those HM people, right? HM, high-maintenance people. And some of us, if the truth were known, we have a preference for being around people who appear or who look a certain way. We still live in a society based upon appearance. By and large, men still look at women based upon their appearance. That's one of the reasons why cosmetic surgery has become such a huge industry is because women know that if they want to be accepted in a certain way, that they have to look a certain way. Others of us are drawn to people because of the way that they dress. Maybe you're turned off by the person who has multiple piercings. Or maybe you're turned off by the guy who wears this big Armani suit and is always dressed to the hilt. Or maybe it's the woman who wears tattoos. Or maybe it's the pastor who wears blue jeans. Get over it. Go to another church. I'm not saying <laughs> I like what Gilda Radner uh, says on her philosophy of dress. She says this. She says, I make fashion choices based upon whether or not it itches. Isn't that good? Some of us prefer to be around middle class or rich people rather than the poor. Any of you ever heard the poem, uh, Paul's Girl? I saw it this week. It's, it's kind of it's kind of good. It goes like this: Paul's girl is rich and haughty. My girl is poor as clay. Paul's girl is young and pretty. 
My girl looks like a bale of hay. My girl is dumb but good. Wait, hold on. Sorry. Forgot that. Paul's girl is smart and clever. My girl is dumb but good. Now, would I trade my girl for Paul's girl? You bet your life I would. (laughs) Others of us, if the truth were known, we prefer to be around people who are more highly educated than those who are less educated. Some of us have strong urges to be around uh, white-collar people instead of blue-collar people, and vice versa. Some of us like to be around blue-collar people. And anyone who's a white-collar office person, we think they're a thief. And of course, the unpleasant little secret that most of us don't like to admit, but it's very true, is that many of us like to be around people who have the same or similar skin color. An African-American man was trying to join a church down south that had a long history of bigotry and racism. And they just wouldn't let him in. And so he went to the pastor and he tried to explain to him what was going on. And and the pastor said, well, why don't you just pray about it? And about three weeks later, the pastor saw this guy and he went up to him and he said, well, did you pray about it? Did you talk to God about it? And the man said, yes, I did. And God said, don't worry about it. I've been trying to get in that church for 20 years and they won't let me in either. You see, the nasty little secret about me and the nasty little secret about you is that we all keep these secret, unpublished lists in between our ears, in our minds, but we never let it out. But in our minds, we determine who is acceptable and who is unacceptable. Who's in the in crowd? Who's in the out crowd? Who is desirable and who is undesirable? And James says right at the very first verse of chapter 2, he says that mindset cannot be. If you're going to follow the one who came to give revolutionary love to all people, who came to stomp out all prejudices and bigotry, it can't be with you. Those kinds of attitudes have to be exposed in our life, and we have to deal with them, and they must be changed. And in the next Several verses. What James does is he simply sets up a test of how you can evaluate your own heart. He sends two different people into a church. One is a rich person. One is a poor person. One is affluent. The other one is living on the margins. And he wants to see how will you treat these different kinds of people. Now, instead of unpacking uh, all of these verses, I decided that I would give us a more contemporary kind of current story that will hit closer at home. But I want you to imagine that you're the main character in this story. So I'm going to share this story. You're the main character. Now, many of you know that we have small groups that meet regularly through uh, the week. And I would encourage you, if you're not in a small group, Go to the resource table, go to the small group table, sign up and be a part of one of those. Now, our small groups are no different than the small groups that met in James' time. People who simply get together to try to grow closer to God and grow closer to one another. Now, 
I want to take you through verses 2 through 4 in a very personal way. Let's say that you're a host for one of these small groups. You invite your small group over, all the people show up, and you are going to host them. The only problem is, is on that particular week, you have a really tough week, and you get laid off from your job. Now, it's been years before you've, uh, you've ever had to go find a new job, but now you're laid off and you're not sure about your skill set and you're nervous about it. You have an emergency fund because you took the Dave Ramsey course, so you know you've got to have a month you know, of money. But then after that, then you're, you know, you're not sure how it's going to be. But you agreed that you're going to have this small group anyways, and so you invite the people in. They come into your house, and they sit down, and they have some drinks. They have some, you know, snacks and a little bit of chit-chat. There are kids that are running all over the place, and you decide, hey, we're going to eat now. And so everyone sits around at the table. Now, your table's not big enough for everybody in the group, so you have to go get a couple card tables. You put them at the end, and you have enough now for everybody. And just before you're getting ready to eat, one of the people say, hey, I'll, I'll pray this time. And so they share a prayer. And after the prayer, you're like, you know what? I know some people invited some other folks to come, some friends. And uh, for people that might be running late, I'll just go to the door. And so you walk to the door and you look out your door window and down the sidewalk. And about that time, two cars pull up at the same time. Now, one is this, a brand-new shimmering BMW M3. And you think to yourself, wow, like who could this be? And the other is a station wagon that reminds you of the family truckster from National Lampoon's Vacation, and it pulls up. And the car has rust and dents, and it's all beat up really, really bad. And then the two couples start walking up your sidewalk towards your door. The couple, the BMW couple, they walk out, and man, they've got fashion clothes. They're looking good. They're looking, you know, just wonderful, and they're walking up. And when you look, you see them, and you go, I've seen that picture before. And you remember that that was the picture of the German CEO from Bravini who just opened up this new plant at 332 and 69. And you think, well, I worked for GM for a while, and then I worked for a couple other shops here in town, and, man, I've been dying to get an interview with that guy, and this will be great. And all of a sudden, the Black Eyed Peas song starts going through your hair. I've got a feeling... That tonight's going to be a good night. And you're like, yeah. I mean, this is the CEO. I'm going to be with him. Arriving at the same time as the BMW couple is the station wagon folks. They get out of the car. They go to the back because that's where the kids are seated. They kind of get the door up and out, and the kids kind of get out. And they're dirty looking. Their clothes look kind of raggedy. And as mom and dad walk up towards you, you take a whiff and you're like, whoa, they hadn't been taking a bath in a while. But you greet both of the couples and you welcome to your house and say, hey, we're we're glad you're here for the first time for our small group. And we're just getting ready to eat so you guys can come on in. And you walk into the living room. But when you get there, you notice that there are only three chairs left in that room. There's a chair that your wife has been saving for you, 
And then there are two other chairs. And now you realize that it's decision time. You have to decide what couple is going to sit beside me and my wife in this place of honor and what couple is going to have to go in the adjoining room and we're going to pull out some TV trays for them. (laughs) Well, you know for sure you're not going to do it to the CEO of Preveni. I mean, you've been waiting to meet this guy. And so, without a thought, you're like, that's my future boss. You know, you almost, it almost comes out of your mouth. You go, ah, come on over. And just as he's walking over, all of a sudden, uh, you know, the other, another person that's a group leader in your small group says, hey, hold on for a second. I thought before we go any further, I just read what we've been reading in church since we've been going through this fuel series. And they're like, oh, okay. And he said, well... You know, this is chapter 2, and starting in verse 2, it says this. Suppose someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor person is filthy and has old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the one wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the one who is poor, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And he reads those words and it cuts you like a dagger. And you're like, what am I going to do? i got four people. Where am I going to sit them? And you know that that one couple, they've been second-class citizens their entire life. They've never been invited to go and to sit at high places before. The other couple, though, they've gone to tons of restaurants. They've traveled the world. They um, always have seats at the best sporting events. They fly first class. What are you going to do? How are you going to handle that? Well, friends, I'm going to let you finish the story on your own. But to help you to do that, to make that decision, I want us to look at these next few verses about what God feels about people who live on the margins of society. Those who are neglected, ignored, and forgotten. James 5, he writes this. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Now again, what's going to happen when he says that? The whammy is coming, okay? He is not doing that in a kind way. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? Friends, what this is saying is that the poorest of the poor among us can very likely be the richest in God's eyes. Because wealth in God's eyes is to be rich in faith. And that would have been a very meaningful thing to the group of people that James is writing to because most of the people that he's writing to are slaves. They're the lowest of the low. They had no rights in their culture. They had no property they owned. They had no voice. But the church was the one place on planet Earth when you came to the church... You were accepted. You were welcomed. You were valued. 
you were dignified. And even though you didn't have a voice Monday through Saturday, when Sunday came and you walked into church, you had a voice. There were no classes, there were no cliques, there were no divisions. Because they understood that God had chosen those who were poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith. And this revolutionary kind of love, just like you're a slave. You are a slave every day of the week. Someone owns you. You have nothing. And all of a sudden, there's this group that's saying, we have a revolutionary kind of love. Rich people, poor people, black people, white people, all people. When they come into this place, and it was like a magnet. Because it was so inviting and captivating. You didn't have to say the right thing. You didn't have to do the right thing. You didn't have to wear a certain uh, layer of clothes. You just walked in and you came as you are. And you were accepted. You know, you want to know what the irony, though, of favoritism is? Is that we often show favoritism because we want to be put in a class with the successful people with the winning people, with the in crowd, with the affluent people. We want to be in with them. But the irony, according to James, is that the supposed winner, that person who looks so successful, they may have gotten their lifestyle, their clothes, their cars, their vacations, their wealth at the expense of the poor. Verse 6, but you dishonored the poor. It is not the rich who are exploiting you. Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? You see, evidently what was happening in the churches, there must have been some of these church folks that were hobnobbing with the rich. They were sucking up to the rich. They were trying to keep honor. And the very people that they're trying to reach out to are actively engaging in oppressing the poor and exploiting the poor for their own economic advantage. And how ironic that is, that people would actually do that. Not that you've ever done that, not that I've ever done that, but you know, you know those other people outside of here would ever try to, to kind of rub shoulders to shoulders with somebody who exploit the poor for their own gain. It was economic injustice. The reality is it still happens in our world today. Do you know how many dictators in the world, when the food comes in and it's on the docks, they let it sit there and they let it rot? There are people that are dying in their country and there's food on the docks. They, get, they take them in airplanes and they drop food and it'll come there and before the people can get there, the military gets there and no one gets fed and people are dying. And some of us might say, well, yeah, but that's in other countries. What happens here, too? Not necessarily with food, but it happens with predatory lenders who charge excessive fees and outlandish interest rates to those who can afford it the least. I'm amazed when I drive around in Muncie sometimes and I see these paid lending stores and there are people there 
And you know they're some of the poorest people in Muncie. And we're charging them the greatest amount of interest. 60 Minutes did a report a few years ago. It it said that payday lending shops that prey on the neediest of our society have actually outnumbered the number of McDonald's. Now, you see a McDonald's everywhere, don't you? And there's more of these pay lending shops. And you know what the APR of most of these shops are? The annual percentage rate? 600 to 700%. I looked this week that if you borrowed $100, right off the top they're going to take at least $25 within that initial thing. You only get 75 And then over the year, it builds and builds. 600 700%. Now, some of you at this point, you're kind of ticked off. You're like, by golly, next time I go by a pawn shop or one of those payday lending shops, I'm going to just like give them one finger saying you're number one, you know? (laughs) But before we go too far, let me ask you this question. When it comes to the issue of favoritism and putting people in classes, when it comes to the moment that I described that you're in the small group, you're hosting the small group, two people come to your house, two couples come to your house, and you have a decision to make. What are you going to do? How are you doing? How's our church doing? James says in verses 8 and 9, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. He's saying if you love your neighbor as yourself, if you're not just merely listening to the word, but you're doing it, you're doing the right thing. And he says if you don't get this right, verse 9, but if you show favoritism, your sin, and you are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Now, I think there's a tendency for us to usually kind of weight our sin. You know, we, we have a list. And if you think about it, you know, favoritism's got to be way down at the bottom. I mean, you know, it's got to be way down on the, on the list of sins. I mean, it's not like it's adultery or murder or anything like that. Well, not according to James. He goes on, he says this, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. In other words, all the sins equal. There's no list. God doesn't look at a list. He looks at all the sin. He goes, why would you choose something other than me? A couple years ago, I went to go visit a guy at the uh, Delaware County Jail, and the family had called me on my day off. And usually, you know, I try to figure something out, but they're like, hey, he really needs to talk to somebody, and so I went ahead and went, and I, I said, well, I'm just kind of going to go, and they're like, oh, that's fine, and I had some khaki shirts on, I had a t-shirt on, and it was on a Monday, so I just mowed the lawn, and uh, I walked into the Delaware County uh, courthouse, and they have this little metal detector, and I walked in, and I got my cell phone out, and I was going to give it to uh, the sheriff deputy that's there, and this is what he said to me. You can't bring cell phones into the jail. Can't you read the sign? Or are you just clueless? Now, little did he know that most of my life I am clueless, but 
So I go ahead, I take my cell phone, I go back out to the car, I leave my cell phone in there, I come back in, and uh, I get ready to go through the metal detector again, and the guy looks at me, and he kind of has a nasty face, and he goes, you can't see anyone anyways. Visitation isn't until tonight. And that's when I said, well, I, I'm a pastor, and I had called, and they said if I come uh, anytime that's not during lunch or dinner, that they would let me in. And the guy kind of got this shocked look on his face. But he wasn't done. He said, well, do you have some ID that shows me that you're really a pastor? And I said, well, I absolutely do. Because I'd done this before, and so I pulled it out, gave him all my ID stuff. Now he's even more shocked. And his attitude kind of changes, and he goes, oh, okay, pastor. If you go right up these stairs, there's a lady that will be on the other side of the glass, and she will greet you and get you on in there. I'm like, okay. So I go up. I visit the person. I get ready to come back downstairs. Got to go through the metal detector. And he goes, hey, pastor, have a great day. And I just walk on up. Now, I had uh, two thoughts as I was walking out. First of all, I thought, what a jerk, you know. And uh, just, you know, I wasn't very happy. And then I got in my car, and then all of a sudden, I felt like the Holy Spirit was saying, well, sometimes you're a jerk like that. You see, when I was just a guy in shorts and a T-shirt and had a little grass stain on the bottom of my shoes... I was treated one way, but when all of a sudden they found out that I was the pastor, I was treated a different way. And you know, I sat in my car and I just began to think, how often do I do the same thing? How often am I guilty of treating people just like that? You know, this week you got a little fuel to encourage you through this week in that pamphlet that you received. And each week I go through it too, and I was going through chapter 2 early. And as I was reading this passage this week, I I just wrote down some notes for myself. And I said, James 2 brings me face to face with the side of myself I would rather ignore and move past. The ugly truth about Chris Bunch is that I'm guilty of the sin of favoritism more often than I would ever want people to believe. Sometimes favoritism resides so deep, so hidden in me, that others might not see it, but I know it, and God sees it. It's the times that I extend a hand, not because another person is in need, but because I'm really hoping that they'll do a favor for me, or they'll extend a hand in the future. It's when I'm Extra kind to an individual because I'm hoping to get something out of them to assist me in my own life. And even in a more and sick and twisted demonstration of my sin, I would have to be honest that in some of the moments where I appear to be getting the issue right, I show no detectable sign of favoritism whatsoever on the outside. But those class distinctions are in my mind, my motive is far from pure. And I secretly hope that people will see me as the kind, fair, and even-handed guy. Or darker yet, that sometimes I do things 
hoping that if I'm kind and nice, that I'll have an illustration for Sunday morning. You see, I'm just telling you, when I read these words, it cuts me deep. Some of you might think a little less of me. But I've just learned that I have to go to a deep, honest place in my life if I really want to change. Or I'll just keep on listening, and I'll just keep on reading the Word, but I'll never be a doer of the Word. You know, the nasty little secret kinds of favoritism that live inside of me and inside of you, many times we think they're unimportant matters. But according to James, it is a sin that needs to be confessed. It is a sin that needs to be brought out into the open. It's a sin that needs to be repented of and turned from. It is a sin that needs to be moved past. So if we're committed to eliminating favoritism in our lives, then how do we do it? How do we show it? Does no favoritism, no class mean treating people with equality? Is the opposite of favoritism equality? Is James saying treat everyone exactly the same? Well, we certain, well, he certainly is trying to say that we should give an equality of value and love of God to all people. But the last couple of verses in this section, James is clearly calling us to treat people with something even greater, even deeper, even more than just equality. Verse 12, he says, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. What is the law that gives freedom? He said it earlier. Love your neighbor as yourself. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now notice that that word mercy or merciful is used three different times in this verse. And that's the same word. It's the exact same Greek word that Jesus used on the Sermon on the Mount, his greatest message he ever gave when he said these words, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now, what is mercy? Now, for the longest time, I always thought mercy was a bad word. Because the only time I said mercy was when my brother was on top of me and had me pinned down like this. And he would say, say it! I'd be like, say what? He'd say, say it! I'd say, say what? He'd say, say it! Say mercy! And I'd go, mercy! And he'd go, it's not enough! You know, and they'd put me down again. But this is what mercy is. Mercy is love in action. Mercy is love in action. Mercy is not just an attitude in the heart that says, I love you, but mercy has to rise up to an expression. It's a revolutionary kind of love. It's not just something that says, I love you, I care about you, I'm concerned about you, but what mercy says, let me help. I love you enough to whatever you're going through, I can help. I can assist you. I can show you much love. We're not only called to treat people equally, but what James says is that he wants us to treat people with something better than equality. That the church should rise the standard. It's not just equality, but it's something greater than equality. It's called mercy. Favoritism looks at the face, but mercy looks beneath at the heart. 
Favoritism says, how can you help me? Mercy says, how can I help you? Favoritism is self-centered. Mercy is other-centered. And friends, every single day, you and I walk through life and we have a choice to make. Will we be merciful or will we choose not to show mercy? Will we choose favoritism or not to show favoritism? But instead of favoritism, James says, show mercy. I have a gnawing fear that sometimes what happens is when we come here and we sit on Sunday and we go through our Sunday and maybe we give some money or maybe we go to Mexico or maybe we go to Oklahoma or maybe we send a check uh, to fight AIDS in Africa. When we do all of those things, we go, ah, I did it. I showed mercy. And it's true. Those things are merciful. But sometimes I wonder when we get to heaven, If God will say, I'm so glad that you captured my heart and you cared for the needs of the broken world overseas and in your own community of the poor, but did you miss the person who was right beside you? How could you write a check to express radical love to something over there and yet ignore the people in your own backyard, your own city, your own neighborhood, your own church? Friends, the way we treat others reveals what we believe in God. Let me say that again. Some of you should write that down because you'll need it later this week. The way that we treat others reveals what we believe in God. And some of you will say, I want that. I want to be a merciful person. Now, God's dream has always been that he would have a classless church. Some of you that have been at the jar long enough, sometimes we are kind of classless, you know? I mean, different kind of classlessness, though, okay? But what God's talking about is a different type of class. A class where there's no distinction. A church where there's no distinction. God's dream has always been that we would be a church that was warm and welcoming and accepting for all people. Regardless of the race, color, the economic bracket, what clothes they wear, we would just be a safe place to be loved and accepted. Derek, who uh, got licensed today, he does our student ministry. So all of our middle school students who are in impact and all of our high school students who are an outlet, um, he works with both of them. And if you know anything about uh, middle school or high school, you'll know that Sometimes there can be a lot of favoritism and there can be a lot of cruel stuff that happens. And I'm always amazed with Derek because he he has an ability to hang out with every single kid, regardless of where they're at. And he kind of has this motto that, you know, regardless of how you're treated at school, regardless of how you're treated in your neighborhood, when you come to impact, when you come to outlook, our outlet, everybody is cool. Everybody's cool. They might not be cool with the jocks. They may not be cool in the lunchroom. They may not be cool in their neighborhood. They may not be cool anywhere else. But when they come to impact, when they come to outlet, everybody's cool. And you know there's just something that's kind of theologically accurate about that statement. There's something that's just accurate about that statement. 
that we as a church, when people walk into the jar, we should be the kind of church that says, everybody's cool. Everybody's cool. In God's family, everybody's cool. This just isn't the job of the greeters when they walk in, that the greeters, it's their job. No, no, no. It's not just the job of the staff. It's your job. It's your job. It's this section's job, that section's job. It's your job. When people walk in here, if you don't know them, you be the first person to walk across the room and say, you're cool. Now, don't use those words. They'll go, you're weird. I'm just amazed sometimes when I walk through that front door, people who are greeting, they don't greet. They'll they'll turn their back and they're talking to other people and there are new people coming in. It took all the guts in the world for them to get to that parking lot. And you're talking to your friends? Don't talk to your friends. Show every single person that walks through that door, you're cool. Then after church is over, when you're cleaning up and everything, then you can say, hey, let's talk together. I know you love fellowship. I love fellowship. But we can't be the type of church that we just fellowship with each other. And I just want to press us on this, that everybody's cool. And they don't know it if you're not there to welcome them that way. The teenager who sacks your groceries, they need to know they're cool. The person at McDonald's, when you go through the drive-thru, And they give you your food. They need to know, you know what? You're cool. The parents who have a handicapped child, they need it. You're cool. So I want to ask you this morning, and I would encourage you to write this name, and it's in your program, who is it in your life that could use mercy this week? So think about it. Who in your life? And write it down and do it. Who in your life could use mercy this week? Think of maybe someone who God has brought into your life who maybe they're not so attractive. They have little to offer. Who others wouldn't understand why you would even bother to stop and spend time with that person. Perhaps you feel guilty because you've been ignoring them. You just walk past them. So how about this? Who is it? I never ask you guys to do something that I don't do myself. And last night at 9.30 while I was in the office, I was going, God, who is it that you, that you want me to show mercy to? And I was thinking about a guy who several months ago got arrested for a particular thing. His picture was in the paper. And even though I tried to reach out to him a few times, I haven't stepped up to do that. And I felt like God was telling me, I want you to show mercy to him. So I'm going to pick up a phone this week. I'm going to call him. And I would encourage you, take three or five minutes just to interact with someone you normally don't interact with. Could you start a conversation? Could you extend an outreach hand? Maybe you could take a huge risk and ask him out for coffee. I don't even know if he'll answer the phone when I call him. But when I call him, I'm going to invite him to go to lunch. Anytime you see someone on the margins, anytime I see someone on the margins, I have a choice. I can extend a hand. I can notice them. 
I can feel their pain. I can enter into their circumstances. I can listen to them. I can pray for them. I can serve them. Or I can avoid them, withdraw from them, look the other way, ignore. We always have a choice. You ever do this before? You go into Walmart and there's someone that's coming down an aisle that you know is a needy, high-maintenance person and you see them coming and you walk to the other aisle. Oh, I forgot. We're so holy here. You know, I've done that before. And you know, what happens is I get to the parking lot and God says, Chris, why won't you be more merciful? Well, I know you've been waiting for it all week. Your memory verse. And it's James chapter 13. It'll come up on the side screens. Let's read this out loud together. Out loud together. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. Let's read it again. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. One more time. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. You know, I was just thinking about it. When I get to heaven, it's only going to be because of the mercy of God, and I'm going to need a full measure of his mercy. And he says, well, Chris, if you want that, if you want my mercy when you mess up, then give mercy to other people. Love in action. And the question is, will you do it this week? Will you just be a hearer of the word, a reader of the word, or will you be a doer of the word? Let's stand for closing prayer. I invite our uh, prayer team to come up. They'll be at the screens. If you'd like prayer for anything, uh, they'd love to pray with you. And let's just take a moment right now, just you and God, and uh, we'll pray. Let's pray. Well, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would move right now in this place. from the opening set of the worship team. God, your your spirit has been so heavy. I don't want us to leave from this place not taking care of the things that you want us to take care of. God, would you convict us right now where we have sinned? Show us that. Show us when we've played the favorite, when we've shown favoritism. Reveal to to us the person. Give us a picture of that person who we've ignored, who we've walked by, who we've brushed off. And you know, it'd mean a lot to God if you just kind of confess that. Not out loud, but just to yourself. God, I confess that whatever their name is, I haven't been merciful to And now to the one who lived the selfless life, 
and broke down all walls and classes and distinctions and then died on a cross so that we could rightly relate to you, Heavenly Father, and to one another. In honor of Jesus, it is my prayer as individuals and as a church that we would be so touched, so cleaned, so filled with your spirit that the day would come when we don't see people's clothes or skin color or cars or house or bank account. And we would see them as you see them, your treasured child. And God, help us to become the one place on planet Earth that when people walk into here, regardless of where they're at, we would show revolutionary, radical love of Christ. There are no class distinctions. There is no favoritism. All are welcome. God, make us conscious throughout this week of how we might show mercy to the people around us so that your name would be made great. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Have a great week. Know that you're loved in this place. If you're new at Guest Connections, we have a free gift for you. Thanks, guys. Have a good week. And if uh, any of you can help us uh, tear down, take a chair, do something, that would be great. No.